0: This Dharma talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org.
1: I have to say when we started uh doing these Saturday morning programs and actually all our all our uh programs online um as opposed to in person, I just um it just struck me right now like um when we first started and I did my first Zoom talk online, I was kind of terrified <laughs> in the sense that um, I realized that how much of my, um, my practice and my, I don't know, way of being kind of uh, uh, was predicated on having the ability to connect person to person, you know, uh, and, and so the, the idea, I think, not, not just the idea, but the, the first time I gave a talk, the feeling was um, very remote, like there's this remoteness and that's, you know, it's coming up on almost a year now of, uh, which is just, you know, astonishing, like who'd have thought, right? But, um, and then this feeling of, you know, anticipation of being able to be in person again Um, sometimes for myself, speaking for myself, it, it feels like a, um, you know, I can grab onto that and think that what's happening now is somehow in this, in this kind of remote way, isn't the real thing. Right. Um, and in some ways, maybe, you know, that's true. And then in other ways, no, (laughs) this is, (laughs) this is reality unfolding right now and i know so many people i mean maybe uh people are you know tired of talking about tired of hearing about it just how um how put out we all are (laughs) by this pandemic and um you know but the and all the myriad ways in which um our deep human need for social connection has been kind of upended and even more so when, um, when, when brought into, um, into the focus of something like having, you know, uh, having momentous occasions happen in our lives, and not being able to um, connect with others in the ways that we are so used to, like, um, you know, weddings, births, deaths, right? Um, I just uh, noticed <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> we are, we are indeed stuck on Gilligan's Island. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you for that, Rob. <laughs> uh, it feels that way. However,, um, that's not really what I wanted to talk about. I just was reflecting, uh, that, you know, it's it's been quite some time. And still, I feel like I've maybe have gotten a little bit more adept at showing up for a Dharma Talks without that human, the same human body to body being in the same room with all the senses of, you know, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, all of it. Right. Um, Having it be limited to this two dimensional screen, um, which we're, you know, also quite blessed to have. That's not really what I want to talk about. So I'll stop talking about it. Um, actually, what I, I wanted to, uh, well, I, I may end up going in a, in a rambly trajectory, but maybe I'll just start with saying that, has anybody noticed, um, any especially people who have been like really plugged into news, noticed um, a feeling of like, um, I don't know, not, not feeling the urge to check the news as often? <laughs> I I can say for myself that um you know I think I've I subscribed to numerous <laughs> numerous news services on my you know on different apps um over the past I don't know 4 years <laughs> and I've noticed that I'm like less inclined to check the news compulsively <laughs> which has made me feel like there's a little bit more space in my life um And, uh, you know, that's I guess that's me revealing my own addiction (laughs) to uh, being connected to what's happening now in the world. Right. What's going to happen next? And uh, but just noticing that my screen time (laughs) has gone down in the last week, I guess. Uh, Pat. Oh, I just wanted to relate something funny. I saw
2: on YouTube the other day, I was listening to that PR person for Biden, the, the girl. She's very young, but she's got long red hair. And she was reporting uh, on his actions that day. And somebody had sent in a comment underneath and it said, this is
1: boring. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I've heard many, many uh, uh <laughs> I wouldn't say complaints, but just people noticing that you know there, there's a, there's a boringness <laughs> that we might might be enduring. Like, what on earth are late night te- what's late night television going to talk about? <laughs> anyway, I maybe I I, I don't want to speak too too soon either. Right? Who knows? Right? It's always uh, something something new will always pop up, which is kind of the the nature of. Uh, I don't know, the nature of our lives, the nature of samsara, the nature of the wheel of rebirth, is that something will always pop up. Always pop up in the next the next thing, the next thing. So I wanted to start actually with reading a koan. Um, some of you who, um, you know, uh, I'm not sure how many of you have been to our Saturday, sorry, our, our regular morning zazen periods online, um, but when we first went into the pandemic, we, you know, we've we've adapted a few changes along the way. When we first entered the pandemic, um, we just had, you know, our two periods of Zazen with Kin And then we did a very short uh, Metta chant. I think that was what we did. Yeah. And then that's all we did. Um, and then we start when we started a practice period back in. I guess it was in the spring. Uh time time is definitely uh, doesn't doesn't seem to make sense right now. But Bruce is shaking his head. Um whenever it was, we started having our regular kind of trying to adapt to our sort of usual pre pandemic sa- uh morning program where we had um <laughs> where we had uh you know, service after after the second period of Zazen, and we would do the robe chant and have a service. And then we would have the reading, This is zukiyoshi, or, you know, some uh, ancestors' uh, words, the Doan would share some words, and then we would have um, announcements and then soji. So we started doing that online, having soji, this period of time of, you know, work practice, temple cleaning, And in terms of the temple that we were cleaning, it was our our temple, whatever temple is, you know, right in front of us. So uh, Chris, our work leader, would assign people to go take care of your bathrooms, you know, find something in your bathrooms that needs tidying, whether it's just emptying the trash or scrubbing the toilet, whatever it is, go do that for 10 minutes and then come back. And we would come back and all kind of bow out. And some days it's, you know, go sweep your, you know, sweep the area around where you sit or take care of your altar if you have a home altar. Right. And so um, I have to say that going back to those forms in the morning, um, there's something very deeply nourishing about, you know, it's 10 minutes. It's got a beginning and an end. (laughs) It's kind of it's mindless work. Right. In a sense, you don't have to think a lot about, you know, should I use the bleach or should I use the bone me? Like, you don't have to think too hard about these things. You just, you know, take care of your space. And I, I don't know about you, but there's something about things like cleaning, like doing dishes where you really feel and see the um, the fruit of your labor. <laughs> when you're done, it's like, ah, oh, you know, the dishes are clean. As you know, in the beginning, you've got, you know, dishes that are not clean and it's like, oh, there's these dishes that need to be done. uh, But then they're they're clean and you're like, ah, I feel I feel settled now. I don't know. Maybe that's another one of my own (laughs) weirdnesses, but I see some of you nodding. And um, so I guess what I want to talk about is, uh, you know, there's this one. we used to read different things. Before we started reading Suzuki Roshi quotes at AZC, there were a number of different quotes about different things, um, but some of them about work practice. Right before Soji, um, there would be some quotes that would be read. Do you know, remember? Some of you may remember these some of these quotes. And we would go through, there were maybe like 12 of them, and every day the person who was uh, assigning the tasks would just randomly choose one and read it. And so we would get to hear them over and over again, sometimes, you know, several, you know, the same one several days in a row. And of course, we didn't, you know, we didn't think that was a problem. It wasn't a problem. Um, but one of the quotes that we uh, frequently went back to comes from a koan uh, from the Book of Serenity. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Ivy. I do miss that too. It um, comes from the Book of Serenity, case 21, which I'm just going to read the case. The, the This uh, koan is called Yunyan sweeps the ground. As Yunyan was sweeping the ground, Dawu said, too busy. Yunyan said, you should know there's one who isn't busy. Wu said, if so, then there's a second moon. Yunyan held up the broom, held up the broom and said, which moon is this? Do you remember that koan? <laughs> so many times, this I, I loved having this koan right before doing soji, right? What does it What does it mean? What does it mean to hold up the broom and ask this question? Which moon is this? Sometimes we we you know we might talk about it a little bit in the circle, um, but oftentimes, most times actually, we would not. We you know we would the person would read the quote. There would be silence, you know, it's not a time for conversation because we're about to go into Soji and do some, you know, sweeping or uh, cheating the altar or what have you. Um, But what does this koan evoke? And how is it used in as a teaching story? And and then I guess my my real question in this talk is kind of like, how is it used and abused? both it can be used and abused this koan and i can say that for myself that i uh, have been guilty uh very guilty of abusing this koan and its meaning anyone here know what i'm talking about <laughs> pat Pat, you raised your hand yeah anyone else no somebody's yeah, choro choro knows this tim is smiling i know he knows <laughs> So how do you abuse this koan? There's a couple of these, uh, these kinds of ideas actually in Zen. Um, And maybe I'll just say a few words about my own history with this koan um, as it's unfolded in my own Zen trajectory. Um, So I don't want to go too far into the weeds here, but just a little background on me, (laughs) my life and my habit, my habit energy. Uh, as a, as a kid, um, probably as a kid all the way up to, uh, maybe just before graduate school, (laughs) um, I was a terrible procrastinator. Actually, that's true still, but I was a terrible procrastinator and I was, um, um, I don't know if it was that I, I thought of myself as being lazy or I don't know, like I didn't care so much about. Getting good grades—it's like getting good enough grades is enough, even though I had a tremendous amount of pressure uh, to excel and you know not fail and succeed. And uh, there's a tremendous amount of pressure, but not a lot of engagement. Right? So the expectation was there, but not a lot of the sort of day-to-day checking in kind of thing. But anyway, I was—I became a, a terrible procrastinator. I still have the tendency to fall into terrible procrastination. And for those of you who may also be procrastinators, you may know that procrastinators actually um, uh, think of themselves often as being lazy. And actually what ends up happening when you're a terrible procrastinator is you fall into this cycle of uh, avoidance. (laughs) That's the big one, avoiding what you think you need to be doing and then over committing and like, throwing yourself in and like, um, becoming consumed and uh, by by the task at hand. Right. So there's a cycle between this avoidance of the task and then like throwing yourself into the task. And I was horrible at it. I mean, I say was I still probably am but I was worse, worse than I am. To the point where, you know, most mostly this came up in school and, you know, studying for an exam or preparing to take, yeah, preparing to take an exam where I would procrastinate starting until, you know, two in the morning, writing papers was the worst. I would not start until two in the morning and usually I'd have a fit before I sat, would, could sit down and start, right? I'd be like, ah, I'd rip my hair and gnash my teeth and stomp around and why do I do this to myself? I should have started last week, ah, you know? And then I would just be like, okay, foomp, and then I would focus. And somehow it felt like I needed to go through that ritual <laughs> in order to, you know, uh, to focus and and uh, address what needed to be addressed. So going from that, I think that changed a little bit. in when I went to graduate school, I became a little bit more disciplined, or more, um, I don't know, uh, maybe I just had better study skills or something, a little bit, a little bit better. But then I went to I went to Zen Center. San Francisco Zen Center. And there's something about, um, you know, the Soji of San Francisco Zen Center or the Soji of Austin Zen Center where it's kind of mindless work, right? Sometimes people think of going into a monastery or a Zen temple as, oh, you're going into this peaceful place where nobody, everybody gets along and there's not a lot to do, right? And you, you know, or maybe like, yeah, there's just, um you know, you sit a lot and there's, it's very spacious and, um, you're able to just completely devote yourself wholeheartedly to the task at hand. And well, um, those of you who've actually been at <laughs> residential practice centers or, uh, monasteries know that that's actually not true, that there's quite a bit to do and, um, people don't necessarily get along and it's very messy. It can be very messy. And yet, Uh, the benefit of such places is that in the midst of all this messiness, there's always, always the practice every day, several times a day of stopping everything and going to the Zendo and sitting. And actually, even when we do Soji, this, this practice of Soji where you've got this 10 minutes of doing some tasks. So you go in and you're washing your, you know, cleaning your, your bathroom and the clackers happen at the end of soji so there's this like clap clap and it's calling everybody back and when the clapper happens the practice is to just stop stop what you're doing you know maybe you you know uh, if you're holding on to a dustbin you know you you empty it or something and then you put it down but mostly it's just to stop stop raking the leaves stop sweeping the path stop washing the dishes um and then return to the circle and bow out with everybody. So this practice of stopping is built into this this idea of Soji. Soji isn't endless. (laughs) It doesn't endlessly go on forever. And yet um, sometimes it can feel like our life and all the tasks and things that we have to do are in fact endless. And for those of you who like to have checklists and like to check things off the checklist, you know, um, you eventually find that the checklist is endless. There's never, never a point at which, um, you know, you're done. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I I have uh, probably always been addicted to this, to the feeling of being done. And um, yeah, and, and, and the feeling of, oh, if I could just finish these things, then I will get to some state of peacefulness. But I need to finish these things first before I can get to that state. And I'm actually taking care, taking great care of my future self by doing these things now so that I don't have to deal with them later, right? Anyone else have this? Yeah, (laughs) pretty pretty common. And and it's, um, you know, There's a there's a number of ways in which our Zen practice filled with all these teaching stories and little reminders from Soji. Well, Soji is a great one. I, I have to say the Soji throwing yourself wholeheartedly into a task, you know, is what's contained in that is that end, right? There's this end to Soji where there's the clappers and you stop on our Han. Some of you, it's been a while since many of you have seen the Han. Uh, This is the wooden block that is used to call people to zazen. So you hear it uh, when you come sit, right? This whacking of this piece of wood, marking time before the period starts. On the Han, it says, you know, great is the matter of birth and death. Don't delay or, you know, stop, stop wasting time. Don't waste time, right? Uh, don't waste this life. It's very, it's a strong admonition to practice, right? Like take care of everything and don't waste time. And the Han's going, you know, it's like, pop, pop, pop. And it's got this feeling of like, there's a roll down on the Han and it's getting faster and faster and faster. (laughs) Uh, But the Han also stops, you know, it stops with three hits. It's like, okay, sit back down. is how the Han stops. But when you, you know, when you go into a Zen center and you read the Han, there's this inspirational quote, of like, yes, you know, life is precious, need to work my ass off. (laughs) Um, You know, it can be easy to fall into that, um, that side of it. In terms of this koan, you know, there must be one, well, who's the one who's not busy? Steve Stucky, Mjogan, Steve Stucky, one of my teachers was uh, very fond of talking about this koan. And I know he himself really struggled over his 45 plus years of practice, that he really struggled with um, uh, busyness, being busy. He was, um, you know, he was uh, also like me, a greed type, I think and would like to uh would never say no (laughs) to anything because he's like oh i can do that i can do this he was optimistic too and um and so he would have a very full plate with his schedule was kind of crazy and just kind of fitting things in and he would often talk about this koan you know this practice of the one who's not busy and uh, i've heard others many other zen teachers Susan O'Connell. Some of you know Susan O'Connell. She's a very strong proponent of work practice, and just recently, um, actually, ran a a Sangha Week on the topic of work practice, I believe, uh, online Sangha Week. And um, I think she also uh, throws herself into work wholeheartedly. It's another Zen thing, right? Throw yourself wholeheartedly in uh, to work practice. So, who is this one who is not busy? Oftentimes, I think it's uh, the danger of this koan is um, in the midst of busyness, sort of the detrimental busyness, it can be easy to say, oh, well, there surely is one who is not busy, which allows me or gives me permission to just throw myself repeatedly at the tasks at hand, right? Because sure, there's one who's not busy, simultaneous with the one who's getting all these things done. Um, Another uh, teaching in Zen is this idea of burn yourself up completely. You know that one? For that one. What does it mean to burn yourself up completely so that there's like a good, you're like a good oil lamp, right? Where the the flame is set so that there's no smokiness. There's no residue and you like, you know, burn up without any like fuss, without any smoke and smelly, you know, petroleum's you know odors and noxious gases, right Burn yourself up completely. Um, you know, just the, the idea of having wholehearted engagement. Be completely wholehearted. Um, Mark Lesser has a book, I think the the title is, what is the title Do less? Less is more. I think this might be less is more. (laughs) I'm not sure. Um, and again, it's like this, this idea of, um, how do we, how do we do, do less or sorry, how do we do more by doing less? Right. There's something in there of like, well, what if we just stopped doing things completely? That's, you know, is there, is there that side? Oftentimes the side that's illuminated is the, um, I don't know how do we get get more done by doing less right there's also in zen um which, uh, a phrase that is uh, kind of the, the phrase of our practice of our soto zen family style which is the phrase men mitsu no kafu you know careful attention to detail is the family way and this is a beautiful practice right it means be here now you know when sweeping just sweep when you know putting your uh your your shoes taking your shoes off and putting them on the on the shoe rack like to do it with great care to treat you know from the tenzo and this teaching of you know treat everything with respect whether it's the you know a soup ladle like you never in a in a kitchen a zen kitchen you'd never well, <laughs> you would usually never find somebody whacking the side of the, of the pot with a utensil, right? Whack, whack, whack to get the stuff to come off of it, right? Because that's not taking care. It's not being respectful, right? However, this, um, this idea of uh, careful attention to detail, if taken too, uh, too far, what does it look like? it looks like obsessive compulsiveness, right? It's like, okay, I have to really pay attention to detail. And that means, you know, I'm gonna be focused and um, and let other things fall away. But that now I'm like the task at hand is, um, is going to uh, consume me, right? So these are some of these, you know, I'm just pointing out some of these teachings that have their shadow side, or they can easily fall into going too far with them Another one um, that I thought of today was this idea of Avalokiteshvara. So, when we think of this uh, bodhisattva of compassion, what does she have? What does her body look like? What does this Avalokiteshvara have? Oh, yeah. Right, you've seen some of these pictures with the um, the you know, the thousand arms and thousand hands and thousand eyes in each hand, and all the hands are holding on to different implements to address the suffering of the world. This is a bodhisattva that we invoke that we want to, you know, invoke within ourselves, it's not outside of ourselves, right? This bodhisattva is inside ourselves, and yet, if we go too far with that, uh idea that this bodhisattva is inside us, we might think that we also have a thousand hands, <laughs> and a thousand utensils for which we can, you know, easily grab and and appropriately apply to the right situation at the right exact time. And soon it's like, you know, all the hands are uh, doing things. I actually have a, a mug. I think I've mentioned my mug. Um, it's called, I think it's called it says uh, something like domestic goddess. right now I'm actually using it as a a pen holder on my desk, but it's got a picture of like this you know person with a you know a thousand, not it's not quite a thousand, but there's like many, many different arms and when a, one of them is vacuuming and one of them is dusting and one of them is feeding the baby and one of them is you know scrubbing the windows and right and it's like and it says domestic goddess, right. And, um, you know, how do we not fall into using some of these teachings um, as a way to um, go too far with burning ourselves up completely, with our wholehearted practice, with uh, finding the one who is not busy, or insisting, surely there is one who is not busy, even as I throw myself repeatedly at the next task and the next task and the next task. As you might imagine, this Dharma talk is actually, uh, addressing me. (laughs) I'm giving this talk to myself and I hope that it's helpful for you as well. Uh, for those of you who fall into, into this, um, uh, this side of things now, I guess I also want to say that, you know, when going into like a monastic environment, there's, uh, you start off, um, the trajectory is kind of like this in terms of Zen practice, you start off at the, in the residency or the monastery or whatever it is that you start off and you have like no responsibilities other than one, your one responsibility. Anyone know what that one responsibility is? I hear, I, I see Tim's mouth moving, but I can't hear him.
0: <laughs> I, I was just saying, keep keep the schedule is is the kind of the one.
1: Yeah, yeah, that is the your only responsibility. Well, besides following other rules like don't do this and don't do that, but just follow the schedule completely. That is the the one rule is just follow the schedule completely. And I've heard it described. One of my teachers, Tia Strozer, would talk about this as in Sashin, when she would talk about following the schedule completely, she would say, just drag your body like an like a fool, like an idiot. Just drag it from one thing to next on the schedule. Just give over completely to the schedule. Right? There's something very liberating in this. Right? Because when the han sounds, what do you do? You don't finish the last line of the right letter you're writing. You don't, you know, scrub the last little bit off the, your, you know, your sink in your room. You just like the Han starts and you stop what you're doing again, the stopping, and then you just go to the Zendo, or you go to the next thing, right? So if it's the bell that's ringing, you go and go to service. If it's the dinner bell, then it's time for, you know, dinner. If it's the Han, it's time to go sit Zazen, right? If it's the railroad bell, it's time to go to work, right? And your schedule of a monastery, um, it's pretty grueling, right? You get up at 3.50 and you go to bed at nine and, you know, there's a couple of breaks between 20 minutes and 50 minutes. There's like three breaks in the day where you're supposed to do all your exercise and bathing and uh, laundry, you know, all those things, personal, personal things that you take care of. But other than that, you're, you're kind of, um, you know, following the schedule means going from this to that, to this, you know, throughout, right. But the, the 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 practice is just to follow the schedule and nothing else. So you don't have to actually be responsible for anything. As you continue in your practice, you start being given a little bit of responsibility. So you might be put on a crew and have to show up to the crew. And, you know, when you're in your crew working, like you might be sent to the kitchen and the Fukuten says, here, chop these, you know, this gallon of carrots into, you know, uh, you know, small roll chop, right? Or here, have these, you know, take these cherry tomatoes and cut them into quarters <laughs> or whatever it is that you're being asked to do. And you don't question, I mean, maybe you question it inside, and you're like, why are we doing this? But you just do it, right? And, and there's something, there's a great teaching in those kinds of situations as well. I remember my first work period, I love work period at Tassahara. but my first work period at Tassahara, I was assigned to go dig a ditch It was up at the water treatment plant and i was going to go dig a ditch for this pipe and this other guy was there with me and he and i um he was a he was a professional ditch digger so he was really good and uh, we were just digging away and hanging out with each other it was up up away from the temple you know up the road a bit and so we would have our breaks up there and we would like you know this is back in the day when you could do these kinds of things we would smoke cigarettes on the on the roof of the water treatment plant and on our break and then we go back to digging we went through days of digging this trench, and then, and then the shop, the manager came up and said, "Actually, <laughs> we need this trench over there." <laughs> so, and I, I remember feeling um, blessed by by my my. Um, you know, it was my first work period at Tassajara, and I, you know, I knew something a little bit about Zen, and so I was just like, "Oh, this is a perfect Zen teaching." So it didn't matter to me, right? I wasn't invested in where this ditch was. It wasn't my ditch, or it wasn't my water treatment plant. I didn't live there, so I was like, okay, we're gonna go dig over there instead. Had I been invested, however, had I been um, in charge of, you know, laying down the pipe, and now I couldn't do that because now it, you know, there's sort of some mistake made, then it would be could be easy for me to get agitated, right, with this person who's like, no, you did it wrong, uh, even though we told you to do that. Right. But for me at that time, it was uh, I, I felt like it was perfect. I felt like, ah, this is what I came here for, <laughs> for these kinds of teachings. Right. Um, so anyway, that's kind of like when you start in your practice, it's like you just do the next thing. You're not attached to it. And then as you, you know, as you get more involved, as you kind of stay longer, you start being given other responsibilities. And you start becoming responsible, not just for your own practice, but for other people, right? You become responsible for feeding the 60 mother monks in the valley. You get. You become responsible for making sure that the order is correct and that the right produce comes in, right? And that, um, that you get the order in on time, because if you don't, the consequences are that you don't have food. Right? And as you continue to practice, you might end up being put on what's called the senior staff, which is kind of this group of people whose job it is to take care of like everything and make sure things run smoothly. Um, And you know, that could be, you know, anything from making sure that the temple dog is not harassing the guests. Uh, You know, at one point I was on senior staff and my job was dog trainer, right? I was the dog trainer and the fire marshal. And the work leader, all, you know, those, those were my three jobs that I did. And I love, that was a fun time. Um, you know, where part of my job was to take the dog out to Monterey for the, you know, weekly lessons. Uh, so she wouldn't, you know, terrorize the guests. And eventually it got to be, you know, she was, her nature was to terrorize guests. And so she ended up uh, being asked to leave the monastery and she went to another monastery, which didn't have as many people and, and lived out her life in uh, 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 At ease. (laughs) Um, But I guess the this idea that I became quite enamored with these some of these Zen ideas of, you know, like for me, the idea of burning oneself up completely in activity was very appealing. You know, I wanted to lose myself and my egoic mind my grasping with just like do the next thing and throw yourself completely into that give over completely to it give up your resistance to you know uh doing to you know being told what to do and i think this is a a fantastic fantastic teaching right um as i continued on in my monastic experience i eventually became the director of the monastery and when i think the first thing on the director's position description is something like the director takes upright and immediate responsibility for everything that happens at the monastery." Like literally, I think that's what that's what the first line was like, okay, you're responsible for everything. <laughs> and it, and uh, in my mind at that time, when I became the director, for me, that was kind of like, yes, I will. I mean, there's a very strong component of Zen, right? Where you just, when you're told to do something, you just say yes. And that's a huge practice. It's a beautiful practice um i don't know if you have heard some some people say that that practice is the practice for your first 10 years of zen training just say yes and then the second 10 years of training what's the practice learning how to say no and it's interesting i've uh, known a couple of teachers one time um when I was thinking about going from Tassahara back to city center, I was talking to one of my teachers, Tia Strozer, again, and um, you know, they had Zen Center, the, the powers that be, um, had asked if I would be, I don't know, take up one of the positions on the, um, the officer's positions. I can't remember which one it was. It was maybe corporate secretary or something. And Tia was just like, say no say no because they will they will chew you up and spit you out you know go on retreat actually <laughs> Why don't you take a year off and just travel I actually ended up doing that um but this kind of you know how to also not go too far in one way right and you you know this all of us know this that Zen training is finding the middle way between extremes what can feel like extremes. And I bring up the various these Zen ideas as you know how it's easy it can be easy to abuse them right if you find yourself falling too far in one side how do you know how do you self-correct how do you know when you it's time to self-correct there are other teachings in Zen in the Fukan Zazengi Dogen says uh, put aside all involvements and suspend all affairs don't think good or bad, don't think pros and cons, give up the the mind, the conscious mind's kind of deliberation of things. Um, there's this idea also of uh, letting go, right? So when, you know, for example, uh, I remember being work leader, you really see this in people where you'd assign people a task and some people, you know, some Some people are like, you know, actually, I'm not interested in doing this task and they kind of, you know, drag themselves and you can see the resistance in them to doing the task and you can see how much suffering is caused by having that resistance right. And then there's other people who may go to the task with this feeling of like, yes, now I have something to do and I'm like happy to go do something. You know, and then they go and do the task and and then maybe the bell rings and you notice that person is still doing the task. And it's like, ah, this person is a little bit falling to that side. Whereas the first person was, you know, uh, falling to the other side. So like where each person that's why when you go and you hear, you know, you hear stories of what, you know, advice that Zen masters give it's like, it's all contextual, it depends on who's asking. <laughs> I remember, um, when I fir- my first practice period at Tassahara, Kosho was the work leader. Kosho was the. For those of you who don't know, he was the previous head teacher. He was the abbot of of Austin Zen Center, and he was the work leader when I was a new, fresh new student. And I knew him from City Center because I, you know, he had lived at City Center. Um, but I kind of latched myself onto Kosho as the work leader and was kind of, you know, became his. Um, I don't know his sidekick <laughs> during work because he was the work leader. He could assign me to do whatever. So he was just like, and I was well, you know, willing to help him. And uh, Blanche, the abbess, was out of town. and She was out of Tassahara for like a week. And he wanted to fix this tokonoma in her, the abbot's cabin. So, but there was a time pressure because she was going to come back. So he was working on it. And I was working with him on fixing this, uh, this altar space inside this, you know, this tatami, beautiful tatami cabin. And um, when the work bell rang, like to end work. I and mean, he was a work leader, right? So uh, when the work bell rang, which he would go ring, he would, <laughs> he, I'm outing kosher here. He would come back to the habits <laughs> cabin and continue to work after telling everybody, you stop, stop work, time to go back to do bath and exercise. And I would do it with him. I would go with him and we would both work until service would come. So bath and exercise period happens. And then the bell rings and people are called back to the Zendo for evening service. And it got after day after day when we were like laboring on on Blanche's Tokonoma, um, we kept staying later and later to the point where one night it was like we had both missed service and we were working through the break, you know, working through dinner. And uh, And after, I don't know, several days of this, at one point, I said to Kosho, "I think, I think I need to go take a break." <laughs> And he turned and looked at me and he said, I wondered when you were going to ask me that. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know what Kosho's was thinking was, if this was deliberate, if he was trying to get me, you know, you know, maybe like the thing that you sometimes you hear, you know, parents do when they've catch their kids smoking, they're like, okay, smoke the whole pack. Right. And like get sick doing it. So you really realize what you're, you're killing yourself or, you know, anyway, I think maybe that was what he was, that was a teaching story. But maybe not, you know, maybe he was, you know, just as uh, uh, um, addicted to getting things done as maybe I was. So another, um, I wanted to share another teaching from uh, Bodhidharma, our ancestor that took Zen from India to China. He says, this is from the Bloodstream Sermon. Pat and I have been reading this together. And this is, uh, we, we read this little passage a few days ago. To find a Buddha, all you have to do is see your nature. Your nature is the Buddha. And the Buddha is the person who's free uh, free of plans, free of cares. If you don't see your nature, and run around all day looking somewhere else, you'll never find a Buddha. The truth is there's nothing to find. But to reach such an understanding, you need a teacher and you need to struggle to make yourself understand. Life and death are important. Don't suffer them in vain. There's no advantage in deceiving yourself. Even if you have mountains of jewels and as many servants as there are grains of sands in the Ganges, You see them when your eyes are open. But what about when your eyes are shut? You should realize that everything you see is like a dream or illusion. So with these teachings, how do you find the middle? How do you find this person who's free of plans, free of cares? How do you reconcile that amidst this other teaching of Hmm, taking great care of the minute details of every single thing that comes into your consciousness. What is the practice of finding the the, striking that balance between um, taking great care, becoming Avalokiteshvara and responding to everything that arises with the utmost of attention to detail and with kindness and compassion. you know, How do you respond to the myriad things with great care while at the same time being a person who's free of plans and free of cares? It's funny, the other day, yesterday, um, uh, Choro was, we were talking about um, Sojin Mel Weitzman. And um, you know, Uh, Choro was talking about how Mel, actually she said this in the Dharma talk too, this idea uh, that Mel would, kind of, not idea, but this practice that Mel kind of embodied of, you know, you know, why worry? What me worry? Alfred E. Newman. (laughs) And uh, um, Choro, would you mind telling the story again? of, um, you know, of, of Mel's uh, ease. uh, How how does he manage
3: to travel around the Dharma realms and... Yes. Yeah, I think um, the way I, I I wasn't witness to this, but the way I heard it was someone asked Sojin, how did he handle all of his um, activities and duties? He was still the, um, abbot of Berkeley Zen Center, he he was abbot for decades and never gave that up, even while being abbot of San Francisco Zen Center. He had many many students, and, and he would regularly go to Tassajara and City Center for meetings. And you know, how did he handle? How did he manage? And he just said, it's like going from one room to another, which I thought was a neat trick.
1: Yes, like going from one room to another. And I actually, you know, I think that there's this, uh, this, I don't know, this sense of the Zen teacher, of being at ease, and calm, and um, not really attached to anything, not really doing anything. Being able to sit and drink tea and look out the window. I remember Tia Strozer talking about Katagiri Roshi, who was her teacher, her um, ordaining teacher, and she said she used to be his anja. She was his personal attendant, so she took care of his laundry and and you know cleaning and and so forth, the personal, the de- kind of personal uh, details of his life. And she said to me one time that she just she loved to just watch him that somehow his teaching was in how he sat drinking tea while looking out the window. I remember thinking that's so lovely. Ah, <laughs> oh, it was so lovely to, um, um, to think of, think of her, maybe, I, I'm, in my mind, I've got Tia like on her hands and knees scrubbing, <laughs> scrubbing the floor and like gazing at Katagiri who's just like, ah, uh, you know, Like sitting there looking out the window so anyway um it's interesting this this idea of um not doing is so much a part so much of a teaching and yet um in the midst of uh of doing and not doing when finding the striking the balance between doing and not doing falling to one side or the other, what helps us determine, discern, um, when we are falling? Right? How can we, you know, I think early Zen Center history, there was, um, there was some criticism of when Richard Baker was the abbot, and there he was, he was a great fundraiser, right, For, for San Francisco Zen Center in the early days. He fundraised uh, to buy the building there and to get Green Gulch to secure, and then to buy Tassahara. Um, All this fundraising that, you know, Richard Baker was really amazingly good at, and it involved hobnobbing with, you know, people of means. So I don't know if you know the story, but he got into some, some trouble when he bought himself a BMW. And uh, meanwhile, the Zen students were toiling away sometimes cleaning up after these big parties that would be thrown at 340 uh 3, 320, 3 something on page street these big parties in the conference center and uh you know picking up cigarette butts and you know glass bottles and um while uh while richard baker was um you know out cavorting right um so how do you how do you strike this balance? And how do you know clearly when you're falling on one side or the other? What does it take to discern? You know, because I, when I use the word abuse, in terms of like, how do we sometimes, we can abuse teachings to allow us to continue to push, um, because it feels like that's what's needed, right? sometimes you need to take a step back right there's this idea again another teaching in zen is how to take the backward step and turn your light inward to illuminate yourself i remember gil fronsdale was talking about um the practice of stopping um this comes up in uh some of you know i'm uh, interested in, in getting some had some training in internal family systems this idea that we have parts of ourselves that uh, sometimes get underrepresented or undernourished because we don't like them and we shove them away and you, we repress them or you know lock them up in the basement, things like that, um, and don't let them out. We repress things in ourselves, right? Uh, different, different aspects of ourselves. And um, one thing I remember Gil saying was that You know, there's a part of us that's really shy in all of us. There's this very shy part that doesn't get to come out very often, doesn't want to come out very often. And actually, the only way you're going to see it, the only way you're going to know it's there is if you create the space for it to come out. And what does that space look like? Does it look like, you know, trying to tempt it with candy or, you know, movies and ice cream? Do you try to lure it out because you're, you know, do you get angry with it and say, come out and show yourself this, you know, this shy part of ourselves? And actually, the way that we get to know this one is by giving a lot of space where we don't put any pressure on it, actually, to come out and reveal itself. Um, and we become curious about it. We don't need it to be any other way, actually. This is a very, very different, different way of being than being, um, you know, super attentive, right? Caring for each in each individual detail that arises with this, you know, I'm going to take care, I'm going to, you know, be wholehearted, right? It's actually, um, the practice, that practice of getting to know that shy one, Gil was saying, is that uh, you need to not do anything that it only reveals itself when there's nothing else going on and i don't know about you but for me it's really easy to get caught up in the doing and i you know i know i talk about this right oftentimes people talk most or you know about the things that they themselves need to learn and I'm no exception to that. So, when I give talks about you know finding that one, you know it's a it's a encouragement to myself. So a couple couple of days ago, I think I made a comment at, at, in the morning after in the announcements in morning zazen, where I think you know I had been hearing different different people making announcements, and the fact that our schedule looks so like empty, like if you go to the website and see what's there, what's coming up, there's not a lot going on. And, uh, someone, I think, uh, Tra- Tracy had, you know, wrote to me and said something like, gosh, you're giving a lot of Dharma talks. Like I noticed on the calendar, like it's just you giving Dharma talks and it's like, looks like there's nothing happening. And, and there was this, I, I had caught some sense of, um, oh, yeah, we don't really have anything going on. Sorry that, you know, things are kind of light right now. And I made a comment and I maybe maybe when I made the comment, it came out a little, I, upon reflection, I thought, huh, that sounded a little sharp. Uh, but I made this comment of like, look, people, we don't need to be doing everything all the time. We can actually just be, you know, we can settle into our daily schedule and, uh, and that can be enough. Right. So I think I may I said that in the after the announcements and um, because I had, you know, because I see it in myself, this feeling this, I would say, an addiction to um, to having ro- a robust schedule of lots of different events and lots of different people coming in and you know, something to look forward to. Again, I mentioned frequently that, you know, of the greed, hate and delusion types, I fall very strong. Like I, I notice myself falling very strongly on the greed spectrum and like, ooh, ooh, wanting more, wanting to be able to provide more, wanting to be able to meet more people or, you know, do more things, have more engagement, right? And um, anyway, so, so I, I noticed myself, feeling kind of put upon in terms of like this, wait a minute, hold on a second, you know, actually, what does it mean to find the rhythm of our own daily practice without anything extra? Right. Now, um, I will say that I have since updated the calendar <laughs> <laughs> and actually <laughs> this time of like, oh, we're not doing anything actually has just been like us figuring out what we're going to do. <laughs> um, so there's lots of things uh, <laughs> that you'll find uh, uh, happening and maybe maybe it would have been a better <laughs> idea to just be like, actually, there's nothing happening. We're not doing anything. Um, so sorry, sorry about that, but, um, but that's what we ended up doing. Um, And uh, I guess I just wanted to to end by saying something that I uh, read or listened to in one of uh, uh, Gail Fransdale's Dharma Talks that I, um, yeah, it's fascinating. He was telling a story about a student uh, who went to her teacher and said, you know, he, he described this student as this is somebody who's really capable and like, you know, throws her shoulder into it and really does, does, gets, gets lots of things done and takes care of a million different things. And, you know, she's a very competent person does great work. And she went to her teacher, the story goes, she went to her teacher and she says, gosh, I'm just, I'm so busy. I'm really busy. And her teacher said, you know, the reason that you're doing so much is because you're lazy. And apparently the way Gil tells the story, I've heard him tell, he, he's told it a couple times, but the, the way he tells it is, you know, because this was her teacher, <laughs> she was able to, she was like, okay, maybe I'll think about this, right? She was initially completely shocked. Like, what are you, what are you saying I'm lazy? How can you say I'm lazy, <laughs> right? Like, how can, how can she be lazy? She's like, you know, doing, doing, doing. And the way he tells the story is like that she eventually recognized after mulling this over like how is this how could this be she realized the deep truth in this in what her teacher said of you know the reason that you're doing so much is because you're you're actually lazy and for her from turning this koan what did she find with it was what she found with this koan is that there was this really strong way that she was using busyness as a way of avoiding Going inside deeply and seeing what's you know what's what's the priority here, what's really important, what's the most important thing, right? And so for her, uh, you know I don't know what happened to her after after she you know reflected on it, but just the teaching of you know maybe it's easier to stay busy. It's actually easy, It takes more work to stop being busy takes more work to stop and let go of all the things, to unplug right. And in some ways, uh, to take that opportunity to not do and to just reflect and allow. and maybe you end up you know, finding yourself sipping tea while staring out the window. So, Anyway, that's where uh, that's where I wanted to get to right now in this talk, and um, maybe I'll end with a quote from uh, from Dogen. This is from the uh, the fascicle called Zenki. Birth is the right nowness of undivided activity. Birth is the un the right nowness of undivided activity undivided activity is birth in its immediacy so this right nowness of undivided activity this is like the the um to me this feeling is you can fall into you know again undivided activity right in this moment it can be you know you can be completely in the moment of your task at hand and feel like you're disporting freely right i know this of myself i can be like okay well this form is broken and this thing is not carrying over to this other thing and needs to you know and i can throw myself into that task at hand and lose myself in the task right in the immediacy of it right what does it mean to do one thing only And not multitask. So this and then the second line, undivided activity is birth in its immediacy. How do we show up for our lives, like really show up for our lives? As opposed to showing up for our task list, of checking things off the list, one thing after another. How do we show up for the world, right? Whether the world in the moment is our temple, the, you know, a physical place called the Austin Zen Center, whether the world is our temple at home and we, you know, show up to, you know, take care of the task at hand. The temple, this temple that we're showing up for, the world that we're showing up for, there's a outer world and all the tasks and then there's an inner world. And this is that turning that light inward And illuminating what's inside which means setting down the outer world for some time this is retreat this is sashim this is dragging your body from one thing to the next mindlessly without attachment to you know whether the ditch was was um dug in the right place right without attachment so I think that's where I want to end. Any uh, any thoughts, comments? Yes, Anne.
2: This uh, it reminds me a little bit of a, a kind of Taoist Zhuang uh, Zhuangzi, and uh, effortless effort, and kind of like uh, the idea of. Um, also the use usefulness of useless of the useless i don't know if I, I think maybe that's um how zen was influenced by Taoism. I, I feel like that that whole idea of being on a like a hedonic treadmill with mm-hmm. our tasks mm-hmm. and work and um it's really very it's for egoic satisfaction and i think that's how i know when i'm engaging in, um, busyness when, it, when it's for egoic satisfaction effortless effort is generally, um, effort that is, it's, it can be self satisfying, but it is, it's a, it, it's also, uh, maybe beneficial to others. I, I don't know it, but it, it, yeah, it is a sense of, of harmony with, with all things. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, like like Wu, the concept of Wu Wei or going with the flow, right? And in in that undivided activity, I think of um, you know where there's no you and there's no activity. It's not you doing activity. It's it's all coming up at once, right? This effortless effort, this state of kind of flow. Yeah, thank you. Other thoughts? Yes.
0: Just as somebody who's who's known you for some time, I I wanted to express how um, appreciative I am of this talk in particular, Um, and. (laughs) you know, I think we all can struggle on both sides, but sometimes I think, you know, when I've really enjoyed working with you, it's it's partly because we balance each other, uh, maybe on this pole and I and I learn a lot from you. Um, so I really appreciate the personal kind of uh, introspection that was in this talk, but I also think it's um, It's a very deep Zen Um kind of balance beam that we walk in practice. um, And it's kind of endless, it seems like. Um, But one of the first teachings I really deeply loved was that when Soji's over and you hear the clacker, put down whatever you're holding on to. Or put it away, but stop, you know? something about that lesson was not anywhere in my culture or in my other kind of teachings in life and conditioning. You know, so it felt so refreshing to receive that lesson. Um so anyway, thank you so much for your your talk today.
1: Thank you, Tim. Yes, I, I know exactly like the I I too was like so impressed with this teaching of just stopping. And, and have to say that I, <laughs> like Kosho, maybe, who maybe not wasn't working on the Tokonoma as a teaching experience, but, you know, it's how easy it is to just be like, yes, just stop. Or carry one thing at a time. Not, you know, don't try to do more than one thing <laughs> at the same time. It's like, yeah, 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 <laughs> I've got things to do. <laughs> how easy it is to sometimes, you know, to fall into that, um, yeah, of course, and <laughs> right. and I'm going to multitask by you know it's kind of like um you know when you think of mindful eating you know this idea or or mindfully doing the dishes right if you're working in a com- commercial kitchen or you just have a dinner party that you're <laughs> about to so remember dinner parties <laughs> <laughs> where you're working you know you're you're you know working in the kitchen and and um trying to get a bunch of things done it's like what does it mean to do just one thing? And I have heard teachers, like, I, and I myself have done this, but I'm remembering Susan O'Connell in particular, this idea of, well, the teaching of doing just, do do one thing at a time. It's like, well, my one thing is taking care of everything. <laughs> And how we can just, like, keep, you know, it's like, well, carry one thing at a time is another thing, like, just just pick one thing up at a time, not, like, try and hold a bunch of different things, like when doing, um you know, when cleaning uh the altar, like, don't carry the incensor and the kabako like, just carry the incensor to the cheating closet, and, you know, but you you will often find me carrying two things. Um, because I, yeah, yeah, Bruce is, (laughs) Bruce is is nodding. (laughs) He's doing the same. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, it's like the idea that, you know, the, the workaround is, uh, just get a tray, right? Just get the tray. And then you put all the things onto the tray. (laughs) So yeah, it's so easy to fall into, um, uh, you know, Fall into doing more and thinking of it as being great activity. Like I'm doing the great activity of a Buddha, but uh, but what's what can be lost in that as well? Yeah, Tim.
0: Yeah, I I, um, I love this distinction about you know knowing something intellectually, like oh yeah, I've heard that lesson to stop when the bell <clears throat> rings or whatever, and then the reality of our life. And I think you know what practice sometimes is is watching myself say like, Oh, I know, I know the, the lesson here, but I really got to finish this thing. You know, I yeah. know it, but I'm going to discount it in this moment and to sort of reflect on that or feel how we're kind of splitting from our practice um, is often how we practice with it.
1: You know? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And, and getting into, I don't know, getting into trouble with it too. I will, I will say just, you know, in my own history of overdoing it, you know, that like my pattern when I was director Tasahara was, uh, yeah, it was like, you know, you get to the point where you're like, you take all your, you know, well, I, I did, got to the point where if in every break, right, I would just continue to work until like, okay, I've got five minutes before the, ha- you know, I'm going to run to the bathhouse and quick shower and get my robes on. I got really good at taking the, like, you know, one minute shower, you know, it really helps when you don't have hair, actually, it's so much easier to like, you know, take a shower because you don't have to scrub your hair. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the getting really adept at like, um, just squeezing things in, it's like, you know, and then there's this little there's this little part in myself that's just like, I see you. I see what you're doing. <laughs> and again, how to how to pay attention to that part often requires to just stop to stop for a while. Thank you for that. Jose, yes.
4: Uh, so in physics, we have something similar where if you're presented with a really difficult problem. Oftentimes, you just need to stop working on it, uh, and take your mind off of it. And while you're showering, or you know, uh, I don't know, uh, when like a tree branch falls in front of you or something, like suddenly, uh, there's the answer. Uh, so, um, so, uh, so I think. Uh, and I think one famous example of this is, I think it was Aristotle who uh, went into his bath uh, and then the water was overflowing, and then suddenly he had this idea, uh, you know, how uh, how objects displace water. Um, so, so we have this uh, constantly. Um, interestingly, I have some colleagues uh, who. Uh, one of them has claimed to me, uh, 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 at least for a certain period, they worked eighty hours of, uh, of, of work a week, and uh, and that that really freaked me out because that was just as I was starting to you know come to UT and you know, start my work and think like oh no like you know I have to you know now uh, you know be this like eighty hour uh, week uh, kind of person uh, in order to stay afloat here, um, and uh, thankfully that hasn't been the case. I can still work normal hours. Uh, thankfully, a lot of colleagues that I have also work normal hours. Uh, and in fact, uh, uh, one of my colleagues, whom I respect very much, he's a uh, he's a far more uh, senior, uh, uh, very accomplished uh, physicist. Uh, he he told me, uh, "Don't worry, uh, uh, you know those those really hardworking ones." Uh, he doesn't even regard them as much as physicists; as more sort of like administrators um, that get a lot of work done. Um, but he doesn't really see the physics come through. Right? He just sees the work come through. Ah
1: uh, yes! Oh my goodness! Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. I can, I can attest to that. My, my own work, it's like, I don't know, it's, it's in, you get into this vein of, um, you know, wanting to grab the low hanging fruit, especially if you get addicted to checking things off your task list, right, where it's kind of like, ooh, I get to check more things and get that, you know, whatever, the dopamine hit of like checking things off the list. So you go for the low-hanging fruit and you end up, and again, this is endless, the endlessness of, ooh, I can just do this one more thing. I can get, fit this one more thing in before I go do this other thing. And um, I notice in myself how I can use that, I can fall into using that as a as a way of procrastinating, doing the, um, you know, uh, doing the spaciousness part, right, like preparing for a Dharma talk. So, you know, my own way of preparing, <laughs> very much I'm realizing actually, is really mirrors my, my procrastinating habits when I was in, you know, graduate school, or college, or where, wherever, right, where, you know, I would do everything but you know, given to a spacious place to in order to reflect on what am I gonna talk about this weekend for my Dharma talk. Right. And so it's like, oh actually this website thing needs to be taken care of. This other thing needs to be oh this other you know and I could be like rushing around doing all the things, checking them off the list, taking care of the administration, right? Of running a Zen center, whatever that means. Right? And actually I've myself have felt the that what suffers is my ability to just be present, right? So I balance that way, you know, because part of my my work is actually just being present to people in Dokusan, right? Or showing up and just being, just being, not doing, right? That's part of my work as well, right? So I'm, you know, it's, um, I'm blessed to have that be part of my work. And at the same time, I definitely let that suffer I notice that I can let that suffer and then feel guilty and feel like I'm failing. Cause I'm juggling too many things and ball. I mean, I can see the balls dropping, right? And I can see them dropping and then feel like I need to do more in order to do less so that I can do more. <laughs> and this idea, this mystique of the, you know, the Zen master or the Zen teacher that, that, um, you know, seems to float from task to task, like Mel, right, seems to float from task to task and just, you know, not worry about anything. And, you know, Dharma is just, you know, the person who's free, the free of planning and free of, um, you know, free of cares. It's like, you know, that's this ideal. And it's like, ah, where do you, f- you know, how do you actually find that? You're not going to find it in doing, doing, doing. Right. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, I oftentimes find my work as being an, an administrator more than being a teacher. Mary, I see Mary's hand. Um, yeah. can somebody take a stack. Okay. Um, uh, not you, Mary, but somebody else. <laughs> meaning, meaning, uh, keep track of of hands. Um, oh, okay. Thanks, Josh. Yes, Mary. Just a, uh, uh, just a quick thing. Um,
5: when you made that comment during morning practice about how, you know, we shouldn't diminish the offerings that we have of our daily practice, it made me reflect on how actually the simplicity of the schedule and the reduction of offerings has actually made me feel a little bit more like I can manageably engage mm. with the practice, that it it's making that front and center as opposed to all of the extras mm-hmm. and just as feedback as a, as a, and I'm only one person <laughs> obviously, but I, I really have enjoyed the simplicity of it. So I do think sometimes when it's, when there's too much, it's hard to put the practice first in, in terms of the the daily um, sittings as much. I, I get pulled into the next shiny thing. Um, okay. So I just wanted to say, um, I hope we can maintain some simplicity and not get over uh, committed as we move forward. I think there's been some some beauty to the simplicity.
1: Yes, thank you. Thank you very much for that. That's, I find that encouraging. Uh, Choro.
3: Um, I know I said this at the time I, I brought up that comment about or that story about Mel and his easily walking through doors into different rooms, but I just want to repeat it for the benefit of others that that when I brought that up in the, whatever context of the meeting we were in Mako, I remember saying <clears throat> Mel was supported to do this by legions of people. <laughs> who, <laughs> who were, you know, doing the website, because Mel was not doing the website. And, you know, Mel was not registering people for retreats, and Mel was not doing a whole lot of things that, that people running smaller Zen centers or, or trying to help run smaller Zen centers are doing. So, you know, and, then, and that's a mutual kind of support. People support Mel to be Mel, and Mel encourages us to imagine a way we could be, you know, like, oh, I could be like this. You know why I, I took that that uh, anecdote with me when I was a very multitasking kind of academic and I was teaching and I was also the, the chair of my department and I had other commitments to my profession. And I thought, I'm going to be like Mel, <laughs> you know, I'm going to go from room to room, but I didn't have the kind of, you know, uh, context that Zen practice provided. Um, it was very challenging. I did it to some extent, but it was really, really challenging to try to maintain that kind of perspective. So all I want to say is, teachers often present us with this extremely, you know, high-level kind of sense of how one could be, but they're supported to do so, and then they support us to imagine, you know, what our lives can be like. So thank you for everything you do. Um, we we wouldn't be here otherwise.
1: Thank you, thank you, Choro. I think Gill also talks about this in terms of like the times when, you know, uh, I don't know if people have this experience, but you know, the um, on the one hand, just stopping and making a practice of like when you get really busy to just stop and sit, even if it's just for ten minutes, to just stop and sit, and actually that gets you access to some spaciousness. Right. And your the amount of the crunch, the time crunch going into that sitting may feel like this is impossible. Why would I act? Why would I? How could I stop what I'm doing and go sit for 10 minutes? Right. That seems impossible. And yet um, oftentimes when we do that, when we give ourselves that gift, we can come out of it feeling actually like we actually have more time than we thought we did. Right. Um, and at the same time, I will say that Gil has talked about times when, sitting was too much carving out time to sit it was too much he describes like when he was when his sons were were in their first year of life <laughs> he said i didn't actually meditate <laughs> when i was writing my dissertation <laughs> which you know again it's like you know um sometimes you know i raise my eyebrows and blink <laughs> sometimes i don't raise my eyebrows and blink like what is uh, you know we we have to find ourselves in the flow of our own life, and it's no one's you know it's no nobody's judgment, uh, even our own judgment. Like we still have to live with, um, you know, the consequences of our actions and the the vastness of like all the different things, right? To just come back to this breath, right, and what's revealed by by doing that. Thank you. All right, I think uh, there's nothing else. I think we can go. Uh, go about our. Uh, Saturday. Morning. It's still morning. <laughs> so. Um, thank you all very much and. Um, I will let you know that I do plan to take my words into uh, into activity, and I have been granted a, a bit of a sabbatical by the Austin Zen Center Board of Directors. So I will be um, not on the schedule for they said six to eight weeks, which I think is fantastic and will give me some. Uh, uh, an opportunity to stop being so lazy. <laughs> really, to stop being so, um, you know, to, to, to lazy about actually stopping <laughs> and turning that light inward. So I want to thank the uh, the Austin Zen Center board of directors and the practice leadership for giving me this encouragement, actually, and for um, for unifying in their their deep wish for uh, uh, for me to do, put this into practice for some time, and my my intention and uh, I don't know about hope or wish. I guess it's a hope and a wish, but more of a it's it's stronger than that. It's more like a knowing that this will deeply support uh, that this will deeply support my my stepping back will deeply support the Austin Zen Center. Because when I come back, and hopefully, in that time, uh, we'll know more about vaccinations and, you know, possibilities. And may it be so that, um, you know, we we uh, we find ourselves in a situation where we can, again, be face to face, you know, warm hand to warm hand in the same room, breathing the same air. Right, something that we've been afraid to do for so long. So thank you all very much. And um, please be well. Thank you.